Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. This week I'm interviewing Charles Grant, who set up and has run the Centre for European Reform. Welcome, Charles. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Douglas. You set up the Centre for European Reform. When did you send it up, set it up and, and why? Well, the background is I was a journalist on The Economist in the 1990s. Uh -huh. I worked on financial markets, then Brussels correspondent, then defence editor. Uh -huh. I was part of a group of friends who thought up the Centre for European Reform led by David Miliband and a guy at BP called Nick Butler. Okay. We all got together and said, there's no think tank in Britain doing serious work on the EU. Let, let's set up something new. Uh -huh. Come 1997 and the Labour victory, just about everybody else involved got jobs in the Labour government as a special advisor. And I, right. I didn't. I tried to and didn't. I failed. So I was left at, at The Economist doing a full-time job at The Economist. You played the long game. <laughs> clutching the baby of a half-formed embryonic think tank. So I had to okay. either get somebody else to actually do the work of being the first director or do it myself. So I jumped. We started off very much as a new Labour project, very close to David Miliband and people like that, and to Blair. But within a year or two, we worked out we'd have more influence if we were a cross-party think tank. We like to talk to all, all, par all, all parties, though we are seen uh, in many parts of Europe as a very Eurosceptic think tank. These things are all relative. These <laughs> things are relative, and I, we do represent a British point of view. For example, in, in EU parlance, we're, we're always rather intergovernmentalist, meaning mm -hmm. we think that EU should be organised broadly around governments in many areas rather than EU institutions setting the agenda. So if you're a Brussels federalist, you don't like that intergovernmentalism very much. I think the EU's a great idea. I think I would agree with many Eurosceptics it doesn't work that well. Where we disagree is whether it's reformable or not. What would be the best way of organising a continent of 500 million people in 2019 if you could have your way? Well, my, my answer is, is partly to look at the ideas of Emmanuel Macron, who I think has some good ideas on this. Uh, he's, they're not unique to him. I think the answer is, so in the awful word, variable geometry or different countries doing different things, not everybody doing the same thing. This, they're, they're this even... was considered sacrilege when Eurosceptics like Daniel Hannan and Sir Michael Spicer talked about it in the, in the 90s, variable geometry. John Major, I think, talked about that. Yes, but even a lot of even federalists like um, uh, the Schäuble Lammers paper of 1995-ish was, was proposed an avant-garde group to go ahead mm -hmm. and, and French governments have perpetually proposed an avant-garde group led by the French going ahead. Okay. So it's, it's not only Eurosceptic to talk about it. But no, okay. the point is, what, where you, you're right, Douglas, is that fed, the traditional federalists in the European Commission think everybody should do everything. They want all 27 or 28 countries, however many it is, to do the same things, join the euro, join Schengen, do all the same policies together. That's the old-fashioned, as I would say, rather conservative view of European integration. Well, my view, which does overlap to some degree with the Eurosceptic view, and it's certainly the Macron view, is different countries should do different things. If you want a, a successful European Union of 30-odd countries when the Western Balkan states have joined, why force everybody to do the same thing? I mean, in effect, isn't Europe becoming like that anyway? Yes, de facto, of course, there is variable geometry. I mean, Denmark's not in Europol. Uh, Denmark's not in the, the defence cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no prospect of Bulgaria or Romania joining Schengen anytime mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. uh, Sweden's never going to join the Eurozone and so on. So there's a bit of it already, but it's, at the moment it's sort of itty-bitty and exceptional. Macron has a bit more of a vision of concentric circles, different countries doing you know, an inner circle of the Eurozone, integrating, I think he's right, quite closely to be effective. Mm -hmm. and an outer circle of the EU itself, then a third circle of countries like Moldova, Macedonia, Montenegro, possibly Great Britain, so they don't want to be full members, but could be partial members. And where I slightly disagree with that is I think that Britain, I don't want to talk too much about Britain, but Britain should be in some of the inner calls for defence and foreign policy. Britain shouldn't join the euro, nor would it ever want to join the euro, as far as I can see. 
But why not have the British in the leading core on defence? Was there a time when you thought Britain should join the euro? Yes, there was. And what changed your mind? Mm. Well, I think two things changed my mind. Firstly, I couldn't, I, Britain couldn't join the euro without um, a referendum being held on it. And clearly, there's, if, if, if we, it's rather hard to hold a referendum about us staying in the EU at the moment, so let alone joining the euro. So there is no political support for it. You can't have a, an ambitious project like that without strong political support. But secondly, the euro turned out to be badly designed. Mm-hmm. I don't think it should be broken up. I, think, uh, I don't even think it was a mistake to try and create the euro. I think it was in many ways desirable to try and create the euro. But the design... For it had flaws, parts of the architecture were missing. Those have been partly remedied and partly not yet remedied. And it would be bonkers for any country to join the euro until it's working on a better basis than it works today. The missing elements were things like a banking union. They forgot to have a banking union. They didn't think of that until the eurozone crisis hit 10 years yeah. after the euro was set yeah. up. There's, and also fiscal policy. There's no kind of attempt to coordinate fiscal policies, which... I being broadly Keynesian in my view, the one I think you do need at Eurozone level. If you're a German auto-liberal, you don't think that is necessary. It's extraordinary what you just said. I mean, one of the fundamental things about the fractional reserve banking system that we have in the West and have had since the end of Bretton Woods is that banks can, in effect, create money out of thin air. And so by definition, if you've got a fiat currency the thing that they're creating out of thin air is that fiat currency. Mm-hmm. So unless the state which issues the currency in effect exercises some control over the banking sector, you're yeah. going to get this this runaway candy floss credit creation followed by crash in, in any country. I mean, yeah. it's bad It's bad enough in, in the United States. Um, it's bad enough with, with sterling. But to, to, to try and manage that um, fractional reserve banking and the tendency of banks to expand the money supply on a one-way bet um, to lend out credit, um, to try and manage that across mm. multiple jurisdictions, mm. it's, it's hardly surprising. That no, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, the, Euro, I think the, you know, the Eurozone will do just what it takes to stop the Eurozone falling apart, yeah. but not much more. Uh, so in my view, the Eurozone isn't going to fall apart. The Germans will agree to those reforms required to keep the show on the road, mm. but not to the more ambitious reforms that Macron would like creating elements of a transfer union and risk sharing. What about Italy? Do you think the banking sector there might be teetering or do you think they'll muddle through? I do worry about Italy. The two, two things worry me most about the future of the Eurozone. Uh, one is Italy. Uh, you know, How can a country with a, an appalling productivity rate stay in the same currency union as Germany with a better economic performance and a better productivity rate? And also a country with rather dodgy banks. That, that, that is a worry. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to know what Matteo Salvini wants, but I suspect he... If he becomes Prime Minister of Italy, which seems quite plausible mm-hmm. to imagine, he will not try and leave the euro because he's, he'll have enough on his plate and enough to worry about. Yeah. The second thing that worries me about the euro is the intellectual rift between Paris and Berlin, the, the rift between the Keynesians in Paris, who believe you have to look at demand management, and the auto-liberals in Berlin and their friends like Austria and Finland, who think that all you have to do is control budgets and do economic reform and then everything will be fine. Has the process of EU integration over a 30, 40, 50-year period, would you say it's been successful? Broadly, yes. And I think the real rationale for me now is not economic. And I've only come to see this rationale since I stopped working in Brussels as a journalist in the early 1990s alongside Mr. Johnson. Uh, and I've only really seen it more as we, as we probably head out of the EU. I think the real reason for the EU is, is geopolitical. I see the West as an important entity. That's an unfortunate word. It, many people believe it's neo-imperialist. It implies cultural superiority of 
Europe or America or over other continents, which I don't mean to imply. But I, by the West, I mean countries committed to democracy, rule of law, mm-hmm. civil liberties, um, good, good governance and some global governance as well. And I think these countries are, these, these values, are these liberal values, liberal with a small L, are greatly threatened today. You said I'd agree with you on that. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I, I think you would agree with me on that. I, I know Russia a bit, uh, and I know Turkey a bit, and, I, and also Trump's America is part of the same problem. These, some world leaders now do not share liberal values. And I think Britain, I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant enough, uh, or rather patriotic enough, to believe that Britain on a good day is quite influential in the European Union. And we're steering the EU towards uh, strategic thinking about foreign policy, maintaining human, some element of human rights in its foreign policy, keeping the West strong. And, I, and it is a, whatever you think of the rights and wrongs in Brexit, is, it is a fact that Donald Trump is happy for Britain to leave the EU. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin is happy for Britain to leave the EU. I don't know, I have no idea what Mr. Erdogan thinks about that. But I think that uh, those of us who care about the preservation of the West and Western values come round to the view, as I've done, that the best reason for keeping the British in the EU is to actually strengthen the West. If Russia is reverting to what you might broadly call a sort of czarist autocracy mm, and mm, Turkey's mm. reverting to a sort of Ottoman tradition, is that not an argument that it's a bit of a polite fiction that Europe, the continent of Europe, mm. has a liberal democratic tradition? I mean, surely it was... Anglo-American force of arms that, for a brief interlude, created a liberal democratic order in in Europe. And what we're seeing now is something perhaps in the in the Habsburg tradition. Mm. It's a small elite trying to manage a mosaic of different identities and doing it with a power structure that involves constantly shifting alliances and the managing of of, of national grievances. Mm. Um, the argument that Europe is as liberal democratic as Britain or America, I, I, or, or even parts of Scandinavia, I, I, I have a problem with. Liberal democracy is a question of degree, of course. I'm not arguing that all 28 member states are equally liberal and equally democratic. I think there are very serious question marks about Hungary today. I mean, there is not much media pluralism in Hungary. What about Germany? Think, is there a diversity of opinion in the Bundesrat? I think so. No, AFD are in there, yes. Uh, I think the German... I mean, is I think, France a proper democracy or is it a technocracy justified by riot? I, for me, a proper democracy means do, do you know who's going to win the elections before they happen? Is there plenty of media, media freedom? Is the, is, the, are the, is the judicial system independent? Now, I don't think France is perfect in, in those respects, but I think it's, it's compared to many parts of the world, it's very, fairly democratic. No, no. And I, I, think that, um, I think one of the reasons why I wanted the British in the EU is because I think they're pushing all the time for better qualities of democracy and governance. And indeed, one of the reasons why most member states or leaders of most member states so much regret the British departure is because they know that the British do have their democratic traditions, which are rather deeper and fuller than some those of some member states. And this was a very useful adjunct to British members. Europe's economic performance has, I think it's fair to say, fallen in in. in relative terms compared mm. to Europe in the 60s and the 70s. And, mm. and there's an mm. argument that, you know, there was this post-war period of catch-up and mm. it was inevitable that there would be some, some slowdown. Mm. I think Europe's also declined in relative terms compared to some of the rest of the world. And again, you could say there's an inevitability that. about yeah, this. Yeah. If a lot of capital and people and uh, mm. concrete comes together in a country like India and China, you're going to have a very quick increase in, in uh, per capita output. Mm. But there's also an argument that Europe's declined relative 
to where it could be. Since mm, 1992, I think that's fair. Yeah. What, you know, the Lisbon Agenda in the year 2000 mm, said mm. that by 2010, Europe would be the most dynamic part of the world economy. Um, okay, so where are Europe's Googles? Where's Europe's Apple? Yeah. Um, does that worry you? Oh, hugely. And, we, and as you probably know, at the CER, we've done quite a lot of work on that. We used mm. to publish a scorecard every, every year for 10 years on the Lisbon Agenda, yeah. looking at how well or how not well the member states had done the things they were supposed to do to create market-friendly, knowledge-based economies. Yeah. No, I think, I think part of the answer is the Eurozone has been a, a, a very suboptimal in the way it's behaved and performed in the last 10 years, uh, 20 years in fact now. Um, the, the Eurozone led to a deep recession in many parts of the EU, which was unnecessary because of, um, didn't, they didn't, the Eurozone did not stop countries borrowing too much in the boom years of the early noughties. And then, then the problems were afterwards, you had to have excessive austerity to, so to get the debt levels back to normal levels. So that was, the Eurozone was, was mismanaged. That's part mm. of the problem. But there's a more fundamental problem you've alluded to, which is where are the Googles and the Facebooks uh, of, of Europe? There is, I, I, you shouldn't, the European economy is not a complete basket case. P plenty of member states do quite well and have, have respectable economic performances. But overall, there seems to be a lack of entrepreneurial culture. Uh, I think that most of, the, most of the causes of that are actually at nation-state level rather than the EU. You can't really blame the EU for the lack of, the lack of an innovative culture when most of the key business regulations are still set by member states, not the EU. Some... How come some of the more innovative bits, mm. Norway, mm. Switzerland, are the bits that aren't covered by that uniform regulatory system? Well, I'd say, I'd say actually Britain, surely. You perhaps know better than I do. Britain has more startups than any other country in Europe, including Norway and Switzerland, despite being... And it's still a member of the EU. So I don't think the EU, the EU regulations are necessarily the problem there. Mm -hmm. because Britain's done mm -hmm. very, very well in venture capital. It's way ahead of most European countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I, don't, I don't claim to know the answer as to why some European countries aren't, aren't doing well enough. I think the answer mm -hmm. is probably universities. I mean, Britain has good universities, which probably is indirectly one of the reasons why we have a relatively good innovation culture compared to some countries. Mm -hmm. Sweden and Norway have quite good universities. Mm -hmm. So does Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So maybe the, the university, but that's not a, that's not a that's not a victim of the EU policies yeah. because one of the Europe's biggest strategic weaknesses for the long run is it's the the lack of innovation in the European yeah. economy. But there are there are pockets of excellence in Britain, but also the Nordic countries, yeah. which show that you can be innovative if yeah. you're in the EU. Yeah. I first became a Eurosceptic when I was at university, and I was given a book to read called "The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers" by Paul Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And Paul Kennedy he basically argued that. The reason why Europe dominated world economic affairs and political affairs and diplomatic affairs from sort of you know 1500 right through until you know um, um, the 20th century mm. was precisely because, unlike say Ottoman Turkey or India under the Mughals mm. or China under the Ming, mm. it had never had a central unifying political mm. authority. Mm. Might we not be seeing European integration actually destroying the key ingredient of Europe's success, which is that Europe traditionally was a mosaic of chaos, you might call it. Mm. In fact, at times it was perhaps too chaotic, all those wars mm. Europe mm. tended mm. to fight. Mm. But that, that very lack of central political authority meant that Europe could, could experiment and innovate. It, it became... Um, one of the world's great centres for innovation, because no elite could stifle innovation everywhere in Europe. This is a very good argument against a superstate, and I totally agree with you. The only bit of that superstate 
you imply has, that has been created is the, is the is single currency. And I have already said that I think a single currency requires more economic integration in terms of fiscal policy in some areas like banking uh -huh. union. But I don't think it requires a single economic government. I'd be strongly against it. But in regulatory terms, take, for example, the GDPR regulations. The effect of GDPR is to prevent people spending and developing marketing and advertising budgets effectively. And it might mean that as a consequence of GDPR, Europe finds that you know Malaysia, Singapore, China, and goodness knows where, leapfrog us in ways that we can't even yet contemplate. Is, is there not a danger that you know, it goes well beyond having a common currency in all sorts of ways. Europe is creating a system of uniform rulemaking, and that lies at the root of its problem. Well, I think the real, well, two points. Firstly, I think rulemaking today is about, in the world is about three entities. It's about China, America, and Europe. And somebody's got to make the rules. And in many ways, if you go to China and to look at the rules that Chinese car manufacturers follow, follow they follow... European emission requirements rules because they think they want. So to... they pick a mix between Europe and America. Yes, yes. And GDPR. I'm no. I'm unlike you. I'm not an expert on GDPR, but I have met many American people in, in American information technology companies who say we, we should use use GDPR. It's actually. Not... I, can, I can see why big tech likes GDPR. Yes, it yes, keeps out small yes. insurgent upstarts. So, the, so the reality, is that, the reality is there's there's a regulatory competition between China, America, and Europe, and most of the world will follow one or the others of those three's rules. And I, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad idea because it, we, it, because there's so much scale is such an important factor in the world today. How big you are determines how strong you are. I think there is advantages of, of scale in some parts of the economy, not, not others. But the, the second point is a more general one, which is a more important point. I think European integration is dead in the old-fashioned sense of a new EU treaty every five years that transfers powers and competencies to the Brussels institutions. We, from the single European Act that Mrs Thatcher negotiated in 1985 until the Lisbon Treaty of 2009, there'd been one goddamn treaty after another leading to more integrated Europe. It's never going to happen again, probably ever, ever, ever. Because if there was a new EU treaty, you know what would happen. There'd be referendums in four or five countries. And we can guess what the results would be. So that's just dead. And if you, and that's why Macron's having such a difficult time. Macron believes in the old idea of a more integrated Europe. But how, how many but people back that? The, 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 the Spanish and the Belgians and nobody else. But it, I mean, I can see why from a European integrationist mm -hmm. point of view, it's, it's really quite dangerous. Because if you get to a stage where you're fearful of putting your proposition to the people because you're going to yes. assume... No, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're, really There's no public support for more integration, yeah. except for in a few countries. So that's why I actually see, perhaps, unlike a lot of Eurosceptics, they, they assume there's a kind of ratchet, everything gets more integrated all the time. I actually think it's more or less finished, mm -hmm. except for the Eurozone, which does need a bit more integration. Mm -hmm. Most parts of the, what the EU does, it's, not, it's going to stay rather similar. Now, talking a bit about the UK's relations with mm -hmm. the EU, um, I mean, we're not in the Euro, we're not in Schengen, we've resisted, even under the the Blair government, all sorts of attempts at greater integration. Mm. And now we voted to, to leave. Would you, would you prefer it if we'd voted to remain? Oh, yeah, I, mean, I was a remain. I mean, my think tank doesn't campaign. We're a serious think tank. But I, in, my, in, in, our, in our inner thoughts, we certainly wanted to remain, and I voted to remain. Yeah. Can you understand why a majority of people in the country thought differently to you? In the CR's annual report, I think in 2004... I wrote that Britain was quite likely to leave the EU. During the referendum campaign, I wrote several things saying why Britain would leave the EU. I, so I, I do, I think I understand. You saw it coming. I saw it coming yeah. because uh -huh. the, the, the narrative that 
Eurosceptics developed was so much more effective and so much easier to like than my narrative or our narrative on the other side. I mean, you know, do you want to be ruled by foreigners or not? Do you want to be bossed around by foreign judges and foreign bureaucrats? Or do you want your, your democratic freedoms to be curtailed by international organizations? Or do you want to be part of a regulatory union that will mean your GDP is 6.3% higher than if it wasn't? You know, the arguments for being in... You're starting to convince me, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as, I, as we would say, the devil has the best tunes. And... Uh, the arguments for integration were always very hard to get across and very but complicated. You said that uh, we have the best tuners on our side. I think mm. actually we've got some of the best composers. Um, I mean, it took a long yeah. time for people like Dan Hannan yeah. to articulate these views in a way that we now take for granted. Yeah. And I, I tend to think actually there's a certain kind of Eurosceptic being self-critical. There's a certain kind of Eurosceptic who for 20 years sang tedious tunes about sovereignty in the Constitution that made Euroscepticism a complete turn-off. You could possibly be referring to Bill Cash, but possibly not. You know. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't you, ever mention no, no, a, a, no. an individual because no. I think Bill is a, a wonderful man who's achieved yeah. a great deal in his well, life. He has, he's achieved a huge amount. And I, I, I'm a huge admirer of his. Mm. But um, the UK, it's often said, has, has common law. This is, I mean, um, weirdly for someone who, who's against judicial activism, mm, I, mm. I suppose you've got to admit that part of the common law is that it's based on what judges mm, over a period mm. of time decide the law should yeah, be. Yeah. Um, Europe tends to have a, 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 a legal system done by design, the Napoleonic system. Except that the ECJ works through a rather quasi-common law system of, of you know, ECJ judgments change the law, in, in, just like in the British system of common law. So I think the... But a Napoleonic yeah. system with judicial activism, you could yes, call it. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, well, I mean, the Irish, the Maltese, the Cypriots, I mean, uh, I don't... Of all the problems of Britain's relationship with the EU, and there are many reasons why we've had problems, I personally don't see our different legal traditions being the main but the main I was going one. to go on and say that that's one strand. Another mm. is, I think, generally speaking, despite the fact we've had socialist governments in this country, generally speaking, the default setting is more laissez-faire. Good, 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 good French phrase there. Mm. Um, whereas in Europe, it tends to be more dirigiste. In many respects, the English, and I use my words deliberately, the mm. English tradition is towards a, a scepticism and a, maybe it's a Scandinavian thing. Maybe it, it, it's showing our Scandinavian roots. There's a scepticism towards trying to make a society by, by top-down design. Um, yeah, I, told, I totally accept that. I just wonder if this British part, British part Scandinavian tradition mm. is fundamentally incompatible with a tradition, a political tradition that produced an absolute monarchy in France, the Habsburgs, the Spanish autocracy. I just, I just wonder if ultimately you, you're, 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 you're trying to fit too many different political traditions into the same box, and something's got to give. Well, well, the Habsburgs was quite a liberal tradition of monarchy, but no, I, I not if, not, not from where I'm sitting. Okay, <laughs> not from, not from the point of view of the Dutch Republic. Okay, well, I, I would, which I, I'd say the, e, the, the, the genius of the EU or the strength of the EU is the different traditions coming together. There, there is a French Napoleonic tradition shared mm. by some other southern European countries. But the mm. British brought their own traditions. And with surprisingly much, one of the things that annoys me about Euroscepticism is they, they fail to see that the British were very influential in the EU. I mean, British, the enlargement of the EU in the last 20 years would not have happened without the British pushing very hard. The mm. European defence policy was a British invention. European foreign policy, very influential. The single market was a Thatcherite mm. invention. I'm not saying we'd always won all the arguments. The French won plenty of arguments too. But mm. the point is, despite coming from a different tradition from the French who set up the EU in the first place, the, Brit the British and the, with the allies working with them, including in recent years in Central Europe, often got their point of view across. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't think I would have advocated Britain leaving the European Union if 
the Lisbon agenda had succeeded. If you had mm. genuinely seen the return to greater autonomy, mm. if the single market was no longer about creating uniform rules but mutual standard recognition, you know, I, I, I think it was both. It's some uniform rules, some mutual recognition. Well, the, the Cassis de Dijon case, I think I'm right in saying, mm. said yes, you could do it on the basis of mutual standard recognition. But I think 1992 in the single market, one of the consequences of that is that the default became. So that the single market wasn't allowing people to buy and sell what they wanted where they wanted. You could only buy, sell, and produce if you complied with a common standard. And that, that's standards, a very, yeah. yeah, and yeah. That, that's a very different yeah. type. It's not really, I would say, a, a free market. It's a, it's a permission-based system. But anyway, yeah. um, where do you think we're going? Do you think we're going to leave the EU? Probably. I, I would have said after the referendum, certainly. I mean, I, I've been quite shocked at the inability of the Eurosceptics to work together to get us out. I mean, I, I was, unlike many of my friends who immediately started campaigning for a referendum to keep us in, I said, don't waste your time. Of course, people are voting. We have to accept that. Just go for the least bad option possible, which is a close relationship, a bit of Norway with bells and whistles added on. But the, the fact that a lot of Eurosceptics voted against Mrs May's Brexit deal in Parliament now means there's a real risk for you guys that we'll stay in. I, I'm not saying it's likely. My own feeling is it's a third, a third. I think there's a 30% chance we'll leave without a deal, a 30% chance we'll leave with some sort of negotiated deal, maybe 30 40% chance with the Mrs May's deal amended in small ways, 30% chance we have a referendum. And if there is a referendum, uh, of course, my team only has a 50-50 chance of winning, no better than that. I wouldn't, wouldn't put it any higher than that. So I think it's... Perhaps... How do you think that would unfold, that second referendum, if it happened? Well, I think that the, probably the, the question would be leaving without, without a deal or remain, because the, the middle ground seems to have gone. I mean, this, this is... I think you've touched on something. Mm. I, the Machiavelli in me thinks that actually what you're seeing is the radicalisation of opinion so that actually if the, if the establishment had been clever and they were too clever by half but if they'd been really cunning they would have extricated us in a way that minimalized the result of the referendum in fact owing to the stupidity of the may administration and the senior civil servants around her what they've done is ensure that we leave on a on a on a on, a, on an absolutist basis I mean, sure. no, many people I know who back Remain are prepared to take the risk of no deal in order to get their objective of Remain. And obviously vice versa, it's exactly the same. A lot of your, your chums will risk another referendum in order to get the, the I mean, I'm genuinely struck. You know, yeah. I, I went into Parliament in 2005. Mm. I got into trouble during the 2005 general election by issuing a manifesto personally that said we should leave the European Union. Mm. I consistently said we should leave. I campaigned for a referendum. I'm genuinely amazed at the number of former colleagues in the House of Commons who never lifted a finger to get a referendum, who never, never went out of their way to help us win the referendum, mm. who now are more absolutist as leavers and define themselves as leavers mm. in a way that, you know, leaves me looking like a sort of a, a, a softy. <laughs> a softy. Yes. And I, I'm genuinely amazed because mm. you know, I, I want to leave, but I don't want to leave so that we leave in such a way so that we've you know, we, we've waged a cultural war against our fellow citizens, so we've become rather yeah. like America, where half the country doesn't talk to the other half. I'm afraid, I think, where we are in that place, yeah. for, for whatever happens on Brexit, I think we're, we're divided in that kind of way for a generation, and it's very, very sad. I don't, I don't see a way around that, well, whatever happens. Generally speaking, if you think that we should be in the European Union, you do so because you think it's a good thing, and you think it's a good thing because you think that human society should be organised by, by blueprint. Mm. So, therefore, the idea of leaving isn't just a question of Britain 
making its own laws. It's a fundamental assault on your top-down human nature by design worldview. Mm. Whereas if you're a lever, you know, you find offensive the whole idea of trying to organize people's lives by, by blueprint. So, I, I mean, I think there's a fundamental philosophical difference between some leavers and remainers. But even that, I don't think quite explains what's been going on over the past three years, where you know, people who didn't feel particularly strongly one way or the other, even at the time of the yeah, vote, yeah. are now absolute passionate one way or the other. And it's not a nice passion often. It's, it's a really destructive passion. It's a dislike of the other side. I agree. But I have friends who were never very interested in the EU who are now much more passionate Remainers than I am. And they won't, won't tolerate anything else. But just, Ditto me with leave. I yeah, mean, I, yeah. genuinely, people who, yeah. who thought I was a bit of a bore on the subject as an MP, who, who now go on, go on marches and you know, mm. uh, join the Brexit party. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. Let me take issue with your blueprint point. I mean, I, I guess we don't agree on this, but I... I don't think those of those of us who, like me, favour a strong EU have a blueprint about anything. It's rather the the fact of being organised together, increasing your clout in the world. I, I think the world is a big, bad, dangerous, Hobbesian place, as I said before. And I think if we work together in Europe, those of us who share similar values, more or less, work together, we can shape the environment around us and stand up for the liberal Western values that you and I share. In now, you mm -hmm. could say Britain could do that from outside the EU. Well, in an ideal world... It could do, and perhaps in the very long run it will do as a kind of adjunct to the EU. But actually, we have more influence in shaping Europe to be the kind of liberal Europe that both you and I would like it to be if we're inside, in my view. Do you think hate crime and xenophobia have increased in the past three years? The police say there was a blip, blip upwards just after the referendum. And certainly my colleagues and my think tank, half the people who work for me in my think tank are not, are not British. And they, they had some personal experiences. They weren't beaten up or anything, but they had some people making unpleasant comments and so on. I think there's a little bit of that after the referendum. I Hopefully that's subsided now, and I'm not sure if it's gone much. I, I haven't seen the recent figures. Do you think that some of the mainstream broadcast coverage mm. has been fair and accurate? Do you think perhaps there's been a dramatisation where perhaps one or two broadcasters who themselves were concerned about the Leave vote from a personal point of view, have perhaps overemphasised some of, some of the downsides or the alleged downsides. Downsides of Brexit. Of leaving, yeah. Possibly. I mean, I, I think the BBC used to be, in the old days, it certainly did have a rather a, a pro-EU bias and didn't allow enough voices such as yours to be on. But during the referendum campaign, I don't accuse it of that. I don't think most people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I think it bent over backwards. It was so keen to be seen to be mm -hmm. unbiased that they actually went a bit the yeah. other way. I, I agree with you. During the referendum, I think they were pretty fair. Mm -hmm. um, but I've given up appearing on the BBC since the referendum because I personally find that the only role they will have for someone with my views on mm -hmm. Europe is to be the cameo extremist. Mm -hmm. And again and again and again, the way the debate is framed but in a perverse way, what they've actually done is, is helped the, the Eurosceptic case. Because what it's done, it's, yeah. it's conflated in people's minds the argument for leaving the European Union with a sort of strong mood of anti-establishment mm. um, politics that's coming yeah. to the fore. I think it's pretty obvious which way that's going to end. You know, if, if, if the elite want to pitch themselves against suburban Britain, um, I, know, I, I think it's easier to get a new elite than it is to get a new people. I think the problem with the BBC isn't that they're biased to your side or my side. It's that they have, they're not very good at explaining things seriously. They're biased against intelligent argument and intelligent analysis. That's so true. That's why we're here, yeah. talking yeah. the way we are. Yeah. I, I, I actually genuinely mean this. 
I, I've listened to you for 30, 40 minutes and you've made, I don't agree with everything, but you've made a thoughtful, intelligent case from a Remainer's point of view. And I simply haven't heard a Remainer allowed to or given the airtime mm. to articulate that point of view over the past three years. And I, I wonder if, if broadcasters actually allowed people to say what you've got mm. to say and people like me to say what I've got to mm. say, I, I think actually people might just cool it a little bit. You know, we don't need to shout. You're right. The BBC has a problem that it wants Punch and Judy shows. It Absolutely. wants a vicious Remainer so, bashing a vicious lever. And, and so it gets people, the worst like, lever. people like you and me who are slightly nuanced don't, don't get on. And so it gets often. the worst kind of lever yeah. on there. Yes. It yes. gets a yes. lever on there who probably would turn me against the Leave campaign. And it gets a Remainer on there who's a sort of parody of a, you know, uh, 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 I won't mention any members of the, uh, the, 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 the House of Lords, but you know yes, the people yeah, I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's almost as if there's, there's, there's a certain kind of person on the peripheries of politics in this country who has sort of, over the past three years, created a, a niche in being obnoxious about the other side in this. And they, yes. they sort of prop each other up. Both, both our sides have such yeah. people on them, unfortunately. Well, Charles... I really appreciate you coming on. Mm. Thank you very much. I, I hope that at some point in the future we can we can talk a little bit about some of these issues when when mm. we sort of when we've moved on because it um, you know it, it seems as if what we've what we've been talking about now we could have discussed at any point over the past three years. Mm. Um, but thank you for coming on and and for disagreeing with me, but in such a civil and civilized way. Thank, thank you. you, thank you, Douglas. Very enjoyable. Great.